The sun is coming up now. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous pink, pink sky. I'm Kana Whitworth. I came back to Moscow, Idaho recently to bring you some updates, sometimes from the wee hours of the morning. We spend a lot of time driving around Moscow at weird times to accommodate all the shows that we file for on ABC. And so we see Moscow in a lot of different lights or really, really dark. I came for a court hearing for Brian Koberger, the man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students in 2022. Koberger, now 29 years old and a former grad student in criminology, maintains his innocence. In the town of Moscow, the King Road house where the murders took place is gone. It was torn down in December. Early this morning, the home that once stood here on King Road reduced to rubble and taken away. And while some are ready to move forward on the healing journey, others worry that this may all be too soon. The victims' families have retrieved their children's possessions from the house, but there are still some precious items they're pushing law enforcement to return, particularly photos on a cell phone. These are the last moments of your child's life, and you're sitting here fighting with somebody who just doesn't care. In December, the president of the University of Idaho published a book on crisis management, including his handling of the tragedy. So we just received our books, the University President's Crisis Handbook, and we're about to do an opening here and see what they look like. After the initial trial date was postponed from last October, the families are still waiting for their day in court. It's time for a trial, Your Honor. This is the King Road Killings. Update, a longer road to justice. We are on the record. This is State of Idaho versus Brian Koberger, case number CR-2922. This hearing, last Friday, January 26th, in Brian Koberger's case, wasn't like a lot of others I'd been to in the Latah County Courthouse. In the past, they were full of national media. For the first time, this one was live-streamed. But inside the courtroom, it mostly appeared to be locals. There were reporters from the University of Idaho student newspaper, The Argonaut. There were students wearing Vandal Law sweatshirts and a row full of younger, college-age girls. I sat behind family members of Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan, who you'll remember were two of the victims. The other two were Zanna Kernodal and Ethan Chapin. In the courtroom, all seven or so of Kaylee and Maddie's family members were squeezed into one row. They could have spread out. The courtroom was fairly open, but it was like they wanted to be a united front, shoulder to shoulder. And when Brian Koberger walked in, I saw their heads pop up. He was wearing a charcoal gray suit with a yellow shirt and a yellow tie. His attorney, Ann Taylor, walked in wearing a plum-colored suit. Her long, blonde hair was curled. She was joined by a couple of other defense attorneys. The prosecutor, Bill Thompson, was there, along with his assistant prosecutors, His long, white beard is probably the first thing anyone notices about him. The hearing was focused on two things. First, the defense had raised a technical dispute. And second, it was time to set a trial date. A trial the nation will be watching for a crime that's plagued this small community for more than a year. On the first issue, the technical one, The defense wants the grand jury's indictment thrown out. They object to how the jury instructions were given. 
Judge John Judge, yes, that's his name, had already denied that request. But Jay Logston from the defense team wanted him to reconsider it and allow them to appeal to a higher court. What we're asking the court to do is to give us the court's blessing to take up the issue to the Idaho Supreme Court. The prosecution's Jeff Nye argued that an appeal would significantly delay the trial. The idea that we would hit the pause button and take power away from this court because there is a interesting issue for the Idaho Supreme Court to address is not something that this court or any court should tolerate. It's time for a trial, Your Honor. Remember, this is a death penalty case. And in their efforts to sway the judge, the defense tried to illustrate exactly how high the stakes are with every decision the court makes. Whether or not the case makes its way to trial at some point uh, is, in our mind, uh, just part of what the court has to look at, particularly in a case where the state's decided that it wants to try to kill someone. The state's decided that it wants to try to kill someone. It was a dramatic line but it seemed to fall flat in the courtroom. There wasn't much reaction, except for prosecutor Bill Thompson, who really took issue with it. He pushed back hard. He makes the allegation the state is trying to kill someone here, and frankly, I find that offensive. We are simply trying to fulfill our responsibilities under the law. To characterize it as the state is trying to kill someone is just simply appealing to raw emotion, and it has no place in this courtroom. We would ask that that not be allowed any further. Ultimately, the judge denied Brian Koberger's request for an appeal over the grand jury instructions. The judge agreed with the prosecution that an appeal would only stall the process, and if the indictment were thrown out, another grand jury would almost certainly reindict him. We really need to move forward. And then they moved on to the one thing everyone had been waiting for. I think we are ready to go to setting a trial, or at least a schedule. The judge approached this cautiously. He knows how many people, both inside this courtroom and around the country, are invested in this trial getting started. The courtroom was silent, in rapt attention. The prosecution proposed a start date. At this time right now, we believe that we could be prepared for trial summer of this year. They said summer would be less disruptive for the community. I say that because right across the street there is Moscow High School. The chair's parking all around the courthouse with everybody else who's going to have an interest in this case and being here. And we've already encountered the conflict between those interests. We can't sustain that for weeks and weeks on end. That's just not fair to the students. It's not fair to the school district. It's not fair to the media. It's not fair to anybody. The prosecutor also cited the lack of hotel rooms, to put up all the expert witnesses and media and other people who will jam into this small town. The defense had a potential solution to that dilemma. They said they planned to file for a change of venue. And this week, they did just that. Koberger's attorneys wrote in part, a fair and impartial jury cannot be found in Lataw County, owing to the extensive inflammatory pretrial publicity. As for the timing of the trial, Koberger's lead attorney, Ann Taylor, said summer of 2024 wasn't realistic in any way. Her proposal, summer of 2025. Then, Taylor launched into a lengthy list of all the work she still has ahead of her to be ready for trial. 
Remember the 51 terabytes of evidence collected by investigators? Koberger's defense attorneys have to go through all of it. To put it in perspective, one terabyte can hold 250,000 pictures. One terabyte, and we have 51 of those. Or 500 hours of high-definition video. So 500 hours times 51, or 6.5 million document pages. And that's equal to 1,300 filing cabinets. And we have 51 terabytes, not just one. So that's a lot. There's a lot to go through in this case. Taylor also said there are 400 potential witnesses, and they've talked to fewer than 10% of them. She said many don't want to talk to her. And crucial expert witnesses haven't been hired yet. Since the murders took place, 9,000 tips have come into the FBI, and the defense has to review all of them. As Taylor was listing all the things she'd need to do to prep for Koberger's trial, there was a moment where she looked down at her client, and he looked back up at her, wide-eyed, taking it all in. But as Taylor went through her list, the judge looked a little bored. He had his chin in his hand and shifted back and forth in his chair a few times. But then, Koberger's attorney said something that really seemed to catch the judge's attention. There is no way that I am effective assistance of counsel. I haven't looked at every bit of discovery that's available. That's the duty I owe to Brian. That's his right for effective assistance of counsel to have me do those things. Effective assistance of counsel. As soon as Taylor uttered those four words, the tide changed in that room. It's something the judge is alert to because if Koberger is convicted and can later prove his attorney made a big mistake, he could appeal the case and get retried, and the judge doesn't want that to happen. I only want to have one trial, one time, so it doesn't come back. One trial, one time. It's something he said over and over again. So bottom line, the judge doesn't want to rush the defense. At the same time, this quadruple homicide happened in November of 2022. A trial in 2025 means making the victim's families wait nearly three years for their day in court. And the judge was clearly struggling with the weight of that. It's really hard for me right now to set something in 2025, even though that might be just the reality. My heart goes out to the victims. I, I can't even imagine the pain, the grief, because you can't really go forward with your life is hanging over your head. So, sorry. In the end, no trial date was set. I didn't have to see the Gonzalez family's faces to know how they were reacting to all of this. They were crestfallen. It was another in a string of disappointments. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Maybe it's a run in the park, a cozy nap, finally finishing that book, or just being there for a friend. We all wish for more time, but here's the real question. Time for what? If time was limitless, how would you spend it? The key is knowing what truly matters to you and making it a priority. And that's where therapy comes in. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know it can be a game changer. It goes beyond the stereotypes. It's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. 
Therapy helps you learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and empowers you to be the best version of yourself. But even if you haven't personally been in therapy, you've likely heard about these broader benefits. If you're thinking about starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's all online, convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. No need to worry about fitting appointments into your busy day. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. Plus, if you ever feel the need to switch therapists, you can do so at no additional charge. It's a fantastic way to make the most out of your time and prioritize your mental well-being. So whether it's that extra hour or a commitment to personal growth, therapy can be the key to unlocking your potential. Give yourself the gift of time and self-discovery. Visit BetterHelp today to take those first steps towards a happier, healthier you. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ABC True Crime to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ABC True Crime. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. All the victims' families have been waiting for a court date. Before our visit to Moscow, we reached out to them. Ethan, Zana, and Maddie's parents declined to be interviewed at this time, but Kaylee's parents, Steve and Christy, were willing to meet with us. They have a lot on their minds, like Kaylee's phone data. They've gotten some of it back from authorities, but not all. They hope to get a few more glimpses of Kaylee's life. The day before Koberger's hearing, I drove to Coeur d'Alene, about 90 minutes north of Moscow, to talk with Christy and Steve and bring their story to Good Morning America. As we hear from the family of Kaylee Gonzalez, they're sharing never-before-released images of their daughter, and our Kana Whitworth sat down with them and joined us from Moscow, Idaho. Good morning, Kana. Michael, good morning. An incredibly emotional conversation. Kaylee's mom says she feels like they've been in limbo now for more than a year. And while she's... We set up our cameras in an Airbnb. There's a lot going on in the Gonzalez household these days with two new grandbabies, and we wanted a place where they could talk without any interruptions. Christy had her makeup and hair done. She was wearing several necklaces, and one that stood out to me had the letter G on it for Gonzalez. Yep. Here we go. You guys okay? Yep. As we were getting ready to start, Steve gave Christy a little kiss on the cheek, like he always does, and then she cozied into him, and we started rolling. Since we've met each other, I promise I'm I'm not going to ask the question of how are you, but where are you? So, where are you right now? Uh, just one day at a time. It's already been over a year, like, you know, and, and I mean, we have felt every minute of that year. Christy and Steve are both eager for the trial to get started, and they say they'll fight to the end to get justice for Kaylee. But the case is out of their hands. It's just really hard to put your, your trust, your hope, your faith in the hands of other people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, like it's so hard. Your life is out of control. When you can't have control of your own life, it's out of control. 
you just get used to letting them represent your child, but they're going to do it in their own way. They're not going to do it in the way that you would do. So you just have to roll with that, but it just makes it that much more that you want it to be over with. So you can have control of your own life. The Gonzalez family has also felt at odds with the University of Idaho in how it's communicated with them. And it was a bit of a surprise to them when the murders showed up as a chapter in a book co-authored by the University of Idaho's president, Scott Green. The book came out this past December and was titled The University President's Handbook of Crisis Management. Here's a clip from a promotional video on the university's website. When I started as president at the University of Idaho in 2019, I knew there were challenges awaiting, but no one could have predicted that our community would have to manage three major crises in four years. Did you know the president was going to publish a book that would have a chapter about the murders? He sent an email one time saying that he was. The chapter is dedicated to the four victims, and President Green writes that there isn't a day that goes by that he doesn't think about them. Proceeds from the book will go to funding a healing garden on campus. I'm going to share a passage with you that stood out to me. Um, He writes, one metric that would determine how well the university handled the crisis would be spring enrollment. And on January 27th of 2023, the university reported that spring enrollment at the University of Idaho was up. Undergraduate enrollment increased by 3.5%. Business over justice. That's really what that's saying. You know, we had a job and we got to get our enrollment numbers up. I've never been able to interview President Green, and I've been asking him since the day after the murders. ABC's request to speak with him about his book were also declined. But a spokesperson did respond, writing, We recognize this entire situation is the most emotional for the families of the victims. The book is not intended to diminish that in any way, but to speak to how the University of Idaho responded and kept its entire student body and staff, as well as the victims and their families, at the forefront of all decisions. One small world connection that we learned that wasn't in the book is that President Green's family once owned the King Road House. They bought it in the late 60s and sold it in the early 70s when the president was a small boy. It was one of several properties owned by the family. We were told by the university that President Green has no memories of the house and did not grow up there. To Kaylee's parents, though, not mentioning such a personal connection to the home where their daughter was killed seems remarkable. Just come out. I mean, you can't help but if your family owned an investment property, let's nothing be ashamed of. Just come out and own it. Quit doing these Everything is just so secretive. And just a few weeks after the book came out, 1122 King Road became a point of contention between the Gonzalez family and the university again. This time, the fight would be about the fate of the home itself. Remember, the university now owns the property. The private landlord donated it after the murders. And Kaylee's parents wanted the house to remain standing, at least through the trial, so there'd be the possibility that the jury could walk through it. 
The university had delayed the demolition once in the fall of last year for the sake of the families, but ultimately, they made the decision to move ahead with tearing down the house. The university said both the prosecution and the defense have had access. The FBI took measurements and pictures to construct a physical model of the home so jurors can see the layout. And according to a university press release, neither the defense nor the prosecution asked for the home to be retained. Ethan Chapin's parents released a statement saying, We're supportive of the decision to take down the King Street house for the good of the university, its students, including our own kids, and the community of Moscow. Remember, Ethan didn't live in the King Road house, but his two surviving triplets still attend the University of Idaho, and you could see the home from the Sigma Chi frat house, where Ethan's brother Hunter is a member. For the University of Idaho's part, they put out a press release on December 14th of last year that quotes President Green, saying, The house is the grim reminder of the heinous act that took place there. The university said it wanted the house demolished to decrease further impact to the students who live in the area. And in the past, the university has said it believes leaving the house would further sensationalize the crime scene. Christy doesn't agree. I don't want to say that we could care less about the community there. Um, of course not. You know, but, you know, the way, I mean, from my understanding where the house is, it's not like smack dab where everybody has to drive. You know, it's kind of in a location that you really only have to go by it if you want to or if you live right there. It's off. You know, so, you know, you don't yeah. have to go by that house. And I understand being a neighbor. I mean, I do sympathize with that, but that shouldn't have been I don't priority. know. Steve and Christy say they found out the demolition was coming over email just hours before the university put out a press release to the public. An email, yeah. You, wait, the university told you via email? Yes. The house was coming down? Yes. Mm -hmm. No one called to talk to you about it? No. They fought it to the last minute. So did others. Someone launched a petition on change.org that collected thousands of signatures. The day before the excavator came to tear down the house, the Gonzalez family, along with Zana Kernodal's, put out a statement pleading to keep the house standing. But three days after Christmas, the demolition went ahead. I was up at like three that morning. Steve and I were sitting there talking. He left for work and um, it was a little after 6.40ish, 6.42. Before the sun's up. In the dark, I turned on the TV and the house was being torn down. They were actually taking a swipe at Kaylee's room right when I turned on the TV. The whole front was gone, and I was literally like, that's literally Kaylee's room. That swipe they just took. It was horrible. Here we go. My producer Timmy and I drove to the site where the house on King Road once stood. Oh, my heart's racing, actually. Oh my gosh. It's totally gone. (sighs) The lot is now a big, empty patch of dirt with a metal construction-type fence around it. They've covered the soil in straw. So empty and sad. There was a lot of life in that house at one point. And there is not a single thing left of it. 
Kaylee's parents, like the other victims' families, did get to retrieve their daughter's belongings from the house before it was torn down. But they've been critical of the way law enforcement has communicated with them. The one reason why we felt like we had to get legal counsel is because we went and we asked multiple times, like, what items do you have of hers? And they refused to give us even a list of the things that they took of our daughters. Like, which, what things were, like, we taken know. evidence? There's just things missing that are not anywhere, and they don't even say that they're coming back to us. They don't even acknowledge they have them. ABC News reached out to law enforcement in Moscow to ask about this. But there's a gag order in effect on the case, preventing the authorities from talking with us. But for the belongings that were returned to the Gonzalez family and the other victims' families as well, the university staged a modular home with all the contents released by investigators. Family members could walk through and gather what they wanted to take home. Christy describes the scene. It was kind of like a garage sale style, mm-hmm. like tables. Um, there was a living room area. There was a um, the upstairs bathroom. So everything from the bathroom, the upstairs bathroom was Kaylee and Maddie's. There was, you know, the kitchen, I mean, even the food items. They even It was dark inside. And Christy and Steve say they were given headlamps to see the items they were supposed to pick up. The modular home had all the contents of the house laid out, like a snapshot frozen in time from November 13th, 2022 the day of the murders. Even the dirty dishes, like exactly how they were, were um, were bagged up in clear plastic bags and in the kitchen area of the modular. So yeah, we, yeah, like literally moldy dishes that were in the sink. The way things were labeled felt impersonal to Kaylee's parents. Nothing said Kaylee. It was all bedroom number two. So our daughter is bedroom number two. And the waste paper basket in bedroom number two was still full of trash. Her little garbage can in her bedroom with her garbage in it laying on top was a little um, squeezy applesauce thing that you would give to like a toddler. Yeah. I'm like, Kaylee with their little apple squeezy applesauce thing right on top. Wait, but I'm sorry, th- was the trash can full? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> it did not appear to have been gone through. And that? made Steve and Christy question whether all the evidence had really been collected. Now, Kaylee and Maddie's bodies were found in Maddie's room, and the trash can was in Kaylee's room, where none of the victims were located. But we know from sources that there were other objects boxed up for return to families that were spattered in blood. We reached out to retired NYPD chief of detectives and ABC News contributor Robert Boyce to understand what's typical when it comes to returning items to families while at the same time, preserving evidence. The retired chief said every item at a crime scene that contains human DNA gets sent to be tested, and evidence from high-profile cases like this one gets carefully screened. Let's understand there's three different agencies, at least, who are involved in this crime scene. The, The FBI, the state police, and also the local police out there as well. So these three agencies all getting together with a singular prosecutor's office has to go through each thing that's released back to the families. So there's certainly a high level of scrutiny here. After the testing is done, anything that's deemed irrelevant to investigators gets returned to the families. That means food-encrusted plates, garbage, even things contaminated with blood are given back. And as hard as that might be, they're returned exactly how they were. You know, it was sad seeing, you know, like her deodorant and things like that, you know, like 
Like you'll put the brush. Yeah, you put the lid on it and think, we'll yeah. use it tomorrow. In all, police have said they gathered more than 100 pieces of physical evidence from the King Road home, along with some 4,000 photos and 3D scans of the residence. The person at the university who had to oversee returning the students' possessions to their families was Blaine Eccles, the vice provost for student affairs and dean of students. We talked about it as we walked through the site of the proposed healing garden on campus. He says they took it all very seriously and tried to be sensitive, both emptying the house and returning the personal effects to families. We put a very intentional process in place on how we could very deliberately and sensitively extract the belongings from the house and get it into a different location so that the families could come in on their time, take the time they needed to go through and collect whatever uh, belongings they wanted. And so we were able to identify another building on campus with multiple rooms to where we could put the belongings that came out of one bedroom into that, another one there, and created a space so the families could walk through at their own pace to, to take what we wanted. And then, you know, with their understanding and permission, then when everyone went through, we, we um, got rid of it. Eccles says the university tried to give all the families a chance to retrieve their loved one's belongings, whether they could make it to Moscow or not. That was an emotional process. But again, I, I marvel at how the families navigated through it. One family we worked with on Zoom, they were not local. You know, we walked through the stuff, my associate dean and I holding the, the video, and then we're, we're going through the boxes for them. It was a heartbreaking job for Stephen Christie going through those everyday objects that Kaylee would never touch again. But the Gonzalez family got it done. We did go down with um, a big truck and a flatbed trailer in her car, and we got everything that we could. It was sad. One item they did not come home with is Kaylee's cell phone. They want to see the photos Kaylee took on her last visit home. Selfies Kaylee took with her mom walking the dogs. Pictures of her and her sister. These were memories of her last days, and they want them. What they did get recently is a thumb drive. They say police promised them at least 4,500 photos from Kaylee's iCloud account. Instead, they say they got a fraction of that, 450 random pictures and three videos. Some are older pictures, some are newer, some are um, just duplicate, duplicate over, 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 same picture, over, 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 over. Um, like there's free. no time frame like, oh, this is the months of this. I mean, and like I said, there's not even, I mean, you could scroll once, twice on a laptop screen and you're at the bottom. I looked at the photos with Stephen Christie. They showed Kaylee from junior high up through college. Pictures of her in a cowboy hat down in Boise celebrating her 21st birthday. They also showed me videos too, like one where Kaylee's tubing in a river with some other girls, including Maddie. Her back is sunburned. She's wearing sunglasses on her head, a Bud Light in her hand, telling her friends a story and making them laugh. One time my grandma took us on a float. She swore by it. She loved it. This exact thing happened where she's like, it's just right around the corner. Pretty soon the sun was going down. It was literally like 50 degrees outside. Our, all our tubes had popped. These are the last moments of your child's life, and you're sitting here fighting with somebody who just doesn't care, who doesn't care. Law enforcement can't talk with us about the phone data because of the gag order. Before I let Christy and Steve go, there was one last thought that had been on my mind for a while, 
that I wanted to put to them. The man accused of killing your daughter had a birthday. Mm-hmm. In November. In the Leta County Jail. Mm-hmm. You've had two grandbabies. Mm-hmm. And Kaylee didn't get to see her birthday. No. Nope. No. His birthdays are going to come to an end, too. We just got to get this case over. We got to get a schedule. Let's stop playing these delayed tactics. Let's just get it done. Success is justice and figuring out we got the right guy and the community came together, jury members, the whole nine. And then the message is, you know, you come to Idaho, you do something like this and you die for it. That's the message. And uh, that's success. Brian Koberger maintains his innocence and has provided an alibi that he was out driving alone on the night of the murders and has spent more than a year in jail awaiting trial. Christy knows the death penalty won't bring an end to the pain, and she questions if it's even justice for what happened. You know, in a way, even though, you know, we, we say it all the time, we're seeking justice, seeking justice, you know, but there is no justice, yeah. you know. Him dying is not going to bring her back, you know? Yeah, I mean, it will be very short-lived. You know, this is like a a book, and that chapter will be closed, but the book never will be. The wound of these murders is going to continue to ache for Kaylee's parents and for the loved ones of all four victims. And as long as Brian Koberger maintains that he didn't commit these crimes— There will be a trial, and it will be up to a jury to decide if he was the one who killed Kaylee, Maddie, Zanna, and Ethan. We'll be back with another update when there's more news on the case. And once the trial is underway, which according to what we heard in court could be 2025, we'll be there wherever it takes place. The King Road Killings is a production of ABC Audio. This podcast was written by Timmy Trong, Meg Fierro, Vika Aronson, and me, Kana Whitworth. Our supervising producer is Sasha Eslanian. Fact checker, Amira Williams. Original music by Soundboard. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. A special thanks to Julie Scott, Josh Margolin, Sasha Pesnick, Santina Lucci, Nicholas Cerrone, and Liz Alessi. Josh Cohan is ABC Audio's Director of Podcast Programming. Laura Mayer is our Executive Producer. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.